Specialty Story, session number 153. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty, how they got there, what led them down the path to the specialty that they chose, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and so much more. Our guest today is no different. Dr. Aaron Nelson is a child neurologist, an academic child neurologist who's been out of in practice for about seven years now. We start the conversation by talking about what led Dr. Nelson into child neurology. So I was interested in the brain from a really early age, and I was fortunate enough that even in high school, um, when I'd exhausted what my public school had, I was able to take a class in the biology of the brain um, at the University of Iowa, which is where I grew up. And so um, I got exposure very early on to the intricacies of the brain in neuroscience, and that's really what I first fell in love with. And so I went into undergraduate, not necessarily planning to even be a doctor, but just to study zoological neuroscience. But the more I learned, the more I was interested in higher cognitive processes, the things that happen in brain development. And it was just a natural evolution to decide to go into medical school. And originally, I was planning to be an MD, PhD. Mm. Um, But as soon as I got into clinical care, um, I very much realized that I actually love working with children, love treating patients. And so uh, I very quickly gravitated away from the basic neuroscience research and towards clinical care. And then I just had to decide between child neurology, child psychiatry, and then developmental and behavioral pediatrics. And so that was actually the hardest decision in my trajectory was deciding between those three. But given my background and given my interest in really the fundamental mechanisms of neuroscience, I chose child neurology and I really haven't regretted it. Was there any path for you to go into adult neurology or was it pediatric neurology the whole way? I was always pediatric focused, which is not the case for everyone. A lot of people really are trying to weigh sort of adult neurology versus child neurology when they're in medical school. And and I'll go and I'll talk to them as they're trying to sort of weigh their different career paths because Unfortunately, you have to diverge pretty early these days, and you have to decide by the end of medical school because it's a very different pathway for one than the other, though I do know at least a couple of individuals who have jumped from adult neurology to child neurology. It involves extra work, extra years of training, and and probably one of those things that's best avoided if possible. What do you think is the biggest or what are the biggest misconceptions or myths around child neurology that you hear from either pre-meds or medical students? Well, the biggest myth that follows neurology in general, but particularly child neurology, is the notion that you're diagnosing, but there's a lot of things that you diagnose that you can't treat. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not untrue that there, there there are certainly cases like that. And when you when you have a child who's diagnosed with a sort of untreatable or or sort of irrevocably progressing disease. Um, You may not be able to arrest that disease process, but there's still a lot you can do to improve the quality of life and to sort of help the family as a whole. Um, But more and more, 
a lot of what we do, we really can treat and we really can make a difference. Um, I do epilepsy and there's a huge difference in terms of if you treat someone's seizures versus, versus if you don't. But, but really across the board in child neurology, more often than not, there's a lot we can do. Why do you think that stereotype persists, both just child and adult, that like good news, we found where your lesion is, bad news, we can't do anything about it? I think there's a lot of historical bias because I think that's a lot of how it used to be. Um, I think a lot of it was figuring out, oh, this is the problem, whether it be a stroke, whether it be ALS on the adult side, um, whether it be these sort of rare panoply of genetic disorders that you see in children but can see in adults. Um, a lot of the time it really was true. And, and it's more with the recent innovations in understanding the pathophysiology of the disease advances in genetics and therapeutics that suddenly we have a lot of targets that we can actually try and treat. So I think it used to be the case. And unfortunately, when people are going through training, they're seeing people who have been out of training anywhere from no time at all to 30 or 40 years. And so you may have a different sort of frame of reference when you're counseling medical students. Yeah. And uh, an episode or two ago, I had a discussion with a uh, a fellowship director who was talking about a study that I think everyone knows. His study was specific to his field, but in general, physicians practice the way they were trained. And so the older neurologists out there may be not utilizing a lot of these new therapeutics and, and things that, that we can do to treat. Which is true. And it's, it's, it's always one of those things where you have to be humble enough to, to say when you don't know whether or not you know. Um, and it's one of those things where the people who are at the forefront of the fields are always learning and everyone needs to. And so very often if I see someone and it's something that's outside of my most narrow area of expertise, um, I'll take advantage of knowing someone who does know more about it than me and talk to them and ask them, you know, what are the latest trials? What are the things going on that perhaps not everyone would know about or you couldn't find even from a PubMed search? Yeah. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good child neurologist? Empathy and caring. Most of all, I think you need to be able to be patient with children. You have to, I really think you have to enjoy working with them and, and enjoy working with children across the developmental spectrum. Um, and so I think if you can do that and be patient with children and observe that really turns out to be more than 90% of our exam most of the time is, is observation and seeing the child playing, interacting with their families, those sorts of things. And so I think those are the most important things that, that are hardest to teach. Because again, you can teach someone to memorize anything, but a lot of those fundamental humanistic qualities are baked in at that point. Do you think it takes a, a special person, an extra special trait to to really understand that maybe in pediatrics, the, the, the patient can't tell you what's going on and, and it just takes an extra special patience to, to deal with that type of patient? Yeah, it's a situation where more and more today, particularly in uh, private settings, there's a very big rush on time. You know, mm -hmm. you may be given a certain amount of time to see a certain number of patients. Uh, and unfortunately, not all patients will fit, fit within that box or fit within that time window. Yeah. And so being able and willing to pause and take that extra time and realize that um, is exceedingly important. And not everyone is going to want to do that. And there's other times when you know, brutal efficiency is the best, most important thing you can do for your patient to improve their outcome. For child neurology, it's rare. It's mostly in the ICU in the setting of stroke or seizures or those sorts of things where that's the case. Most of the time, you really want to take 
advantage of any amount of observation you have to really try and parse out fine details of the exam, of the history, those sorts of things. What sorts of patients are child neurologists seeing day-to-day in a clinic? So it's a mixture. Um, We see a lot of developmental delay, which can be developmental arrest, can be developmental regression. Um, We see a lot of headaches, whether it be pediatric migraine or other headache disorders. Um, We will see a lot of epilepsy, which is how I first got exposed to it and actually became interested in epilepsy because I hadn't decided to go into it actually until midway through my child neurology training. And those are really the three big things we see. Um, There's a lot of multi-organ syndromic disorders, genetic diseases, just because of how much expressed protein you see in the brain. So when you have a very diffuse process, um, it's, it's very common for the brain to be affected. Um, so those are some of the main things that we'll see day in and day out. Now, a lot of students go into medicine because they love the, the puzzle pieces. They love the Sherlock Holmes part of it, of really figuring out what's going on. For child neurology, how much of that is there or are patients coming to you already diagnosed and are just looking for long-term care and treatment? So it's really important to take that approach, whether or not someone is coming to you with a diagnosis. Um, There are a lot of rare diseases, unusual presentations of either more common or rare diseases. And so we'll often have patients who come to us with a diagnosis that is not correct. Um, And you can do a giant disservice to a patient to uh, just take at face value their diagnosis. Um, I work at times at Bellevue Hospital in New York, where we see patients literally from all over the country, all over New York, who have sort of come to New York as the main public hospital. And we see a large number of children who've never really been able to have a full medical workup for their condition. So it's very common to have a patient come with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, for example, or developmental delay, when in fact, what you find is there's very specific features that may point to a specific condition, some of which are treatable. Um, And it's very common for us to pick up things that have gone undiagnosed for years, including subtle or subclinical seizures, um, progressive neuromuscular problems that can be treated, those sorts of things. Yeah. Very interesting. What does a typical day or a typical week look like for you? So for me, I'm sort of a jack of all trades and I go all over. So so my typical days when I'm on service, which I'm on service a large chunk out of the year, in the mornings, I'll meet up with a team of residents, usually child neurologists, but also adult neurologists, occasionally pediatric residents, usually a handful of medical students. And we'll start sort of at the north end of this medical complex in southeast Manhattan that starts with the Hassenfeld Children's Hospital, which is the main sort of private inpatient hospital, move south through a neonatal ICU, go from there to Bellevue Hospital. And during that time, we're seeing patients in the emergency department. We're seeing patients in a general pediatric floor in a pediatric ICU, neonatal ICU, some of them high acuity, a lot of them low acuity, but just, you know, issues that have arisen while they're in the hospital. And so that'll be usually anywhere from an hour to a couple of hours in the morning. And then I'll settle in at Bellevue where I run pediatric epilepsy and I'll read EEGs while teaching how to read EEGs to usually a subset of those residents. Um, And then when we've read EEGs and rounded on those pediatric epilepsy patients, I'll join one other attending who is co-staffing our teaching child neurology clinics, which are mainly located at Bellevue, but are for the NYU residency. And so Uh, With that, then I'll get to see a whole variety of different patients, anywhere from infants up through young adults, 
um, for their follow-up continuity of care. And so that'll usually go into the early afternoon. And then the, the later part of the afternoon, if I'm on service, will be family meetings, uh, whether it be with other specialists, parents of patients, with patients, without patients, um, and, and then, of course, t- discussing or staffing new consults that have come in during the day. So I have to ask, with COVID happening right now in the, in the middle of this pandemic as we're recording this, for child neurology, are you seeing anything special or different, any unique presentations of kids with COVID? So we have. We've seen a number of different cases which are being written up even as we speak, both by our residents as well as some of the other members of the NYU Neurology Department. We have a whole database that is that is being put together of interesting cases. Um, and so the main thing I personally have seen uh, has been a host of acute encephalopathy, particularly with seizures, where the main cause that we can identify is, is COVID-19. Um, and so uh, it, it, we've actually picked up a number of cases where there were no outward clinical seizures, but they weren't waking up upon extubation. And so we found that they were, in fact, having seizures that with treatment, then they return to their baseline. And so it was very important for us to be involved when, when patients were not waking up or getting back to their baseline after sometimes prolonged intubations. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. For the student who really likes working with their hands, neurology typically isn't one, uh, a field where they think procedures are involved. How much can a student or a physician be involved in procedures if they want in child neurology? So you can be quite involved. It depends on which area you want to go into. So for example, if someone wants to do mostly outpatient child neurology, but mainly wants to do procedures, then they can do pediatric neuromuscular medicine or and specifically learn to focus doing EMGs and nerve conduction studies, where the bulk of that really is, is doing procedures and, and laying of hands on patients. Um, there are, of course, the main procedures that we do inpatient, which are lumbar punctures, which anyone in any aspect of training for child neurology will get really good at. Um, and then there's also pediatric neurocritical care, which is a very, very new field. There are fellowships in it. Um, and those are specifically high-level acuity patients working much more closely with pediatric neurosurgery. So there's a lot more hands-on care and procedures for those patients as well. Yeah. Okay. So there's something if they like it. What yeah. is what does the call look like for you? Is is call typically done at home? Are there emergencies where you have to come in for anything? So call for child neurology varies a lot from program to program and region to region. And usually it's dictated on how big the program is, along with how many trainees there are. Uh, at our program, for example, for the trainees in-house, there's an adult neurology night float system where there's an in-house junior neurology resident and senior neurology resident. Our child neurology trainees do that over the course of their training, but thus when they're actually covering child neurology, they're at home and they're doing home call. Fortunately, with advances in technology, they can review imaging, they can review labs, they can look at EEGs, they can do pretty much anything and everything that you would want to do aside from the laying of hands on patients. And so then they'll have to make a decision whether they can sort of work with the in-house junior neurology residents with regards to what the exam is or whether or not they need to come in. Um, For me personally, I'm another layer above that. So even though I'm on call pretty regularly, I typically am not having to come in as an attending. Nice. Okay. For the general child neurology population out there, do you think people have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yes. I think it it affords a really good work-life balance as long as you're careful enough to set 
both goals and limits. Uh, it's a situation where some people are able to work part-time, only three or four days a week, primarily outpatient. People who want to do more clinical neurophysiology, epilepsy, or neurocritical care can do shift work, more similar to what you'd imagine for an ER type situation. Uh, so you can really do everything outpatient, inpatient, shift work, or continuity of care. And so uh, it, it's just a matter of negotiating what it is that you want. Um, in academics, it's very common, of course, also to have either a half or a full day devoted to academic productivity. So you may be doing clinical work four days out of week and then have the fifth day to be able to work on whatever scholarly activity that you're doing longitudinally. Yeah. What does the training path look like to become a child neurologist? You, you talked earlier about how you have to kind of diverge early on. What does that look like? So the training path for child neurology has changed a lot over the last decade or so. And so it's very different now from even when I was going through training. So currently, there are three main ways to become a child neurologist, but there is one that is really the way that I would recommend people go. So the, what I would recommend is categorical child neurology positions. So those are positions that you apply to through the regular match uh, during your last year of medical school, similar to the vast majority of training programs. And what you would do is you apply to a single program for their categorical position. Most places like NYU, you'll get the opportunity to interview not just with the child neurology program, but with the pediatric program, the adult neurology program, et cetera. But then you're there for five years. And you do typically two years of pediatric training, uh, a condensed schedule. Then you do about a year of adult neurology and two years of child neurology. When all is said and done at the end of those five years, you're board eligible to become a general pediatrician. You can sit for the general pediatric boards as well as adult neurology boards with special qualification in child neurology. So basically you can, you can essentially be double boarded if you want to be at the end of those five years. Now, after that, some people choose to go on and do additional fellowships, which may add on time, but the core training experience is five years. There are other pathways. People can do a full pediatric residency and then apply to what are called reserved child neurology positions, where you're only matching to three years, just the adult neurology and two child neurology years. There are what are called advanced positions, where you match to just those three years, but several years in advance. That would, be for done, that would be done for someone who knows where they want to go separately for pediatrics. But again, that's a pretty convoluted pathway. Um, and then I do know people who have done adult neurology residency and then jumped over to child neurology residency, but then that required additional years of training as well. So I'd really recommend exploring early on and pursuing a categorical pathway of training because then it's one match, five years of training at one program, and then you're done. How competitive is child neurology? It is not particularly competitive, but I'm, I'll explain more. Um, it is very non-competitive for a U.S. medical graduate to get into a U.S. program. Pretty much everyone who wants to get into a program will. So you don't have to worry about whether or not you will get into a program. Most of the programs are very small um, and have a handful of positions. And so because of that, it is highly competitive at the few clearly top programs where it's the top candidates vying for a very small number of spots. So, so it is competitive at that highest level, but in terms of whether or not people have to worry about board scores of a specific number to be able to match in the residency at all, it's really a non-issue. That's good. 
So if, if you want it, obviously you still do well at it. <laughs> How much do you think the the step one going pass fail is going to potentially hurt or help students? I genuinely don't know. Um, I don't think it's going to hurt students. I don't think it will necessarily be particularly helpful. It's just going to shift what people look at. Um, I think think with step one going past stale, it's going to be that much more important to make yourself stand out outside of just having completed medical school with good clinical rotations. I think it becomes that much more important to find a good mentor, have research projects, excuse me, um, to show some degree of academic productivity because that is something that is looked for um, quite heavily for child neurology applicants. And so I would shift focus to things like that to really make yourself stand out in some fashion. It's possible that people will look then more at step two clinical knowledge. Obviously, clinical skills is currently suspended. Um, In the past, I used to discuss the benefits potentially of doing visiting rotations at institutions, um, which is what I personally did coming out to New York and my wife in in psychiatry, and we found that exceedingly helpful. Um, I'm loath to even mention it right now because it's not something a lot of places are doing currently in the setting of coronavirus. Yeah, it's it's interesting with everything going on. There's the potential silver lining of let's maybe think about better ways to do what we've historically just settled on because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah, it's really good to be forced to reinvent things sometimes. We, yeah. We've noticed a lot of benefit at NYU in terms of how we've rethought a lot of the educational curriculum, mm-hmm. despite all of the things going on with the pandemic, we were able to continue our didactics throughout. And we've really found that we have more participation in things like our protected didactic lectures, our grand rounds, speakers, those sorts of things, given the fact that we have a very good system up and running for video conferencing. Yeah. Uh, whereas before it was in person and you had the people who were able to physically make it. Now we have a lot more of involvement throughout our whole network and, and, individuals can really make sure that they're consistently getting that education. So I think there are benefits. Yeah. Awesome. Once a student finishes their child neurology residency, what opportunities are there for potential uh, fellowships and subspecialization? So there are a lot of opportunities at at most high end academic child neurology training programs. I would, I would estimate a majority of the trainees go on into fellowship. It's certainly not required. You can get jobs in child neurology without fellowship training. And in fact, child neurologists are heavily in demand throughout large chunks of the country where there's a severe shortage of child neurologists. So, so you don't need to do fellowship training in order to be able to get a job, and, or, and including a really great job. That said, I think a lot of people do choose to do subspecialty training. The most common ones are clinical neurophysiology or epilepsy or pediatric neuromuscular fellowship. But nowadays, you can do nearly anything that you would do in adult neurology for pediatric neurology. For example, you can do pediatric headache. You can do pediatric movement disorders. You can do developmental and behavioral child neurology. Um, About the only thing you can't really do is dementia. Um, but, But aside from that. Do you see any negative bias towards osteopathic physicians wanting to go into child neurology? You do see it. Um, you shouldn't. It's not a good thing. Um, we don't, where either where I have trained before and where I am now, there, I don't think there is genuinely, and people strive for there not to be. But I'd be lying if I said I haven't heard comments from people. Um, and so it's unfortunate. 
Um, but I, I think in some situations there may still be a bias. I would try and have us open a dialogue with any place that you're interested in to find that out. Um, I routinely get requests for information along those lines from applicants at NYU, and I and I always tell them it, which is genuine, that it really doesn't make a difference because um, again, it's it's a situation more about what their pathway has been, what their background experience is, what their interests are, sort of their long-term career pathway and goals. So, so, but I think it's important to have that dialogue for DO candidates if they're applying so that they know before they are trying to take the leap of faith at a particular institution. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting hearing you say that and the, the few, and, and thankfully it's few physicians who have been candid enough to say there is still bias. It's usually at these upper echelon on institutions, right, where there is still a lot of status involved. And I think that is uh, maybe the the last ivory tower to fall potentially of, of uh, the DO bias. But it's it's out there. Obviously, people are people and there's going to be bias out there. So thank you for, for being honest about that. Yeah. And during my training, I have worked with multiple DO sort of both co-residents, co-fellows, and so, so it's, as I said, again, it's, it's not been my experience where I've been because I have been working side by side with DO candidates throughout and have some in our department. Um, but I think it is still something that if you're talking nationwide and as you're applying and casting your net, um, it'd be foolish to not at least think about that and try and have a dialogue with wherever you're interested in going. Yeah. For the future primary care physician, and, and obviously for you for child neurology, the pediatrician listening to this, what do you want them to know about child neurology to help their patients and help you treat to those patients as well? The biggest thing is to know that we exist and that we're a resource uh, and that honestly, most of the time we would rather that children were referred sooner rather than later. Um, one of the most common things that we see that I wish we could avoid are late referrals for developmental delay or late referrals for episodes that they're worried could be seizures, um, very occasionally for head growth concerns, um, though usually it's more the other way around. There's a concern for head growth and, and it turns out to be okay. But again, I'd still rather see those patients. Now, it's it's interesting. I, I don't talk about it much on the podcast, but I have my own personal journey with a, a child that, that had some delays and ended up with a not not a fun diagnosis. And, and there was that pushback from the pediatrician and, and I'm good friends with her and I don't blame her for anything. But there's there's always that. Well, the default is it's a de- developmental delay and there's nothing wrong and let's wait and see. How can you teach them to have a higher kind of tripwire to send to you in the future? There's a few different ways. So the way that I, and sort of, I think we as a group of child neurologists try and do it is through education. So I regularly give lectures, not just to child neurologists or adult neurologists, but to the general pediatric residents in training at NYU, specifically on these sorts of aspects. What are the things they need to look for? What are the things they need to refer for to try and, and, catch people early and make it an ingrained part of their sort of physician identity to know that we exist um, and to utilize us. Um, As technology changes, there's actually more opportunities uh, with the evolution that has happened incredibly rapidly with teleneurology and telemedicine. Uh, Now it's that much easier to have a peer-to-peer consultation, physician-to-physician consultation, if you're in a location where there's not as ready access to child neurology nowadays, you may be able to get that access without the patient actually having to travel as far as they might otherwise need to travel. 
Um, it, within our systems, we're even trialing things like e-consultation, where if you're referring someone to child neurology, you can actually have a discussion in advance of that referral to avoid any unnecessary delays in treatment and in testing, those sorts of things. So, so that's what I would really try and, and do is just get it normalized within the culture that when there's a question or an issue or concern, rather than erring with the side of statistics, which statistics will say that most children who have very mild developmental delay will be fine, erring on the side of maximum intervention, which is picking up everyone as, as much as possible, as early as possible, because we know that makes a huge difference as well. Yeah. And with what you said earlier, there's a, a huge shortage of child neurologists. It makes it hard if every pediatrician right. wants to send every kid to a child neurologist. Exactly. What other specialists do you work the closest with? So I work quite closely with developmental and behavioral pediatricians, which um, if I had not been a child neurologist, I probably would have been a child psychiatrist, but a close third would have been developmental and behavioral pediatrics. We will actually share a continuity clinic with them, along with our genetic specialists, uh, one day a week where we can see patients with genetic developmental disorders who often have comorbid neurologic issues beyond just the development. And so we work with them very closely. We do quarterly multidisciplinary conferences with them and their fellows as well on topics of shared interest. So I'd probably say developmental and behavioral pediatrics the most, though child psychiatry is a close second and will often have case presentations and case conferences with child psychiatry at Bellevue, which is one of the top child psychiatry places anywhere. Um, and, and they'll often see very interesting cases where the question is, sometimes this is a patient with a known neurologic issue who is having severe psychiatric issues because of their neurologic issue. How do we best approach it? And other times it's a patient presents with a psychological uh, issue and then we need to figure out, is it due to an underlying separate organic neurologic disease that we need to be treating or should it just be left primarily to pharmacotreatment and, and therapy in the hands of the child psychiatrist? Yeah, interesting. If you could go back and talk to yourself before you started child neurology, what, would you, what, what advice would you go back and tell yourself? Do not be as stressed as much of the time. <laughs> I think I think a lot of people who go into medicine, uh, not all, but a lot are, are relatively type A personalities prone to stressing out about things. It's a situation where medicine is very stressful. But as I've gone through the pathway of training, what I've realized more and more is at least on the pediatric side, generally speaking, people are very friendly. People are very nice everyone is looking for everyone else to succeed. And so I think uh, early on, I stressed out about every little thing, not about patient care, which I think people should stress out about, but just all of the other things that go into trying to develop an academic career. And, and I, think, I think if I had lived life with a little bit of less of that anxiety, uh, everything would have still turned out probably just as well uh, and been maybe a little bit more pleasant. Nice. What do you like the most about being a child neurologist? The thing I like the most is the opportunity to treat and see children um, who are across the developmental spectrum. Again, I am biased. I, I didn't even originally plan to be a doctor growing up um, and was more interested in the neuroscience of the brain originally, but fell in love with the clinical care. And, and the thing that I like the most is, you know, you're, you're trying to evaluate a baby 
a few months old for some specific concern, you know, three quarters of the exam is essentially playing with an adorable baby, like and observing their reactions and stuff. And so, so it's actually very, very fun. It's, it's a very pleasant thing to do. I enjoy it. Um, I like teaching. And so I really enjoy my role in residency and education. So that's also a lot of fun. Um, so those are the things that that make it a joy just to be able to sort of come in to work and to do the day-to-day process of work. And so I would look for something that you feel the same about because again, it makes, it makes life much better when you're enjoying large chunks of your day. What do you like the least besides charting? (laughs) Um, Besides charting, which this may, you, this may not count in which case you can tell me to give a different (laughs) answer, but, but, but dealing with insurance companies um, and, and prior authorizations and the myriad of ways that we will get refused things that I think are for the benefit of our patients. I think there's a lot of obstacles thrown up that are hoping, hoping to save money through attrition, hoping to save money through people just giving up trying to get what they think the best thing is for their patient. And that bothers me immensely. Um, I, I, I work both at the height of private medicine and public medicine because I see patients both at NYU and at Bellevue. Um, and there is a vast chasm uh, in terms of what patients are afforded access to in this country. And so that's the biggest thing that bothers me um, day to day. Now, the, the pandemic, uh, as well, obviously, as the George Floyd killing, we've seen racial disparities just on display at like no other time, it seems like. Do you think the, the disparities in health that we've seen with the African-American community disproportionately affected by COVID, do you think that we may see some changes in our healthcare system because of this? I hope so. Um, there need to be changes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know um, is the honest answer. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think we need to. I think there are giant disparities from community to community. There are differences in mortality in New York, just moving a few blocks from zip code to zip code. There are marked differences in terms of pediatric and adult mortality, and that really should not be the case. Um, and so uh, the you know children are going through a lot right now not only because of racial disparities, but, but because of trying to deal with homeschooling in the setting of coronavirus in New York, where some families can adapt much better to distance learning than other families, not just because of money and access to electronic equipment, but also due to cultural differences, language barriers, all sorts of things that, that are not necessarily really being treated or dealt with as evenly across the board uh, to help everyone as it should be. Um, so, so I think if, I think with the, hopefully the good that comes out of these protests, um, with, with any good that can come out of an incredibly tragic and unnecessary act, um, I think that the changes that would be enacted would be helpful, obviously for children in those communities as well. And if there's a way that we can improve quality of life that then leads to better, I I think that will lead to better healthcare, but of course I just don't know. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a child neurologist? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I, going through my pathway, I was not particularly certain moment to moment. I sort of wove my way through each decision. Um, so it was not a well-planned, well-charted course. Um, but I'm very lucky and very fortunate that I ended up where I am. And I'm very happy doing what I get to do every day. Any final words of wisdom for a student listening to this, thinking about potentially neurology or maybe stuck between neurology and psychology and and potentially interested in child neurology? 
So I'd realize and recognize that, yes, it's all the brain. Um, and there are some diseases that are just neurology or just psychiatry by historical circumstance. Um, but try and get a sense of the different approaches because there's differences in terms of approaches from a pharmacological therapeutic standpoint versus mechanistic electrophysiology standpoint. So think about those sorts of things. Um, but I really think the most important thing that uh, those going through their medical training can do is to try and get exposure early. Uh, not all institutions have great rotations in child neurology. And so if you're a place that you don't have access early, I'd really encourage you to seek it out. Um, most places that do child neurology will accept visiting students, um, maybe not in the next six months due to coronavirus, but in general. And it's a really good way to get exposure because you have to you have to really make up your mind by the time you're entering into you know the midway part of third year into fourth year because you have to do the electives to get the letters of recommendation to have the competitive application. Um, and so if you don't have those steps in place. You could suddenly find yourself uh, with not enough time to to get where you need to be to mount a competitive application. If you're not sure, talk to your talk to your medical school. Say, you know, during my second or third year core neurology clerkship, can I do some child neurology instead of adult neurology? Really, I would advise anyone who's thinking about going into pediatrics to do that. Rather than do adult neurology, go ahead and take advantage if you can and do pediatric neurology. Because even if you just do general pediatrics or a different pediatric subspecialty, you'll have that much more exposure to what you're going to eventually see. So those would be my main points of advice. All right. There you have it again. Dr. Aaron Nelson, child neurologist, talking about his specialty, what led him there, and so much more. Hopefully you got a good look at or a good understanding at what child neurology is, at least from one point of view. Obviously, there are many points of views and many different opinions about every specialty, the pros, the cons, and so much more. So go out there, ask questions as much as possible. If you want to find some more information, I always recommend going to the societies of these different specialties. And Children's Neurology has their own society at childneurologysociety.org. Go check them out and see where potentially you can find some more information and some mentorship as well. If there's one thing I've learned on this podcast, it's that mentorship is probably the biggest determinant of where someone ends up in their career as a, a specialist. So go get some mentorship, whether it's for child neurology or for if it's for another specialty that you may be interested in. Keep an open mind as you're going through this journey because you never know what is around the corner. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.